0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Grace Elizabeth Hale about her book, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. Grace, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, So I wanted to start out with having you read a bit from the uh, introduction of the book.
1: Okay, great. Um, The first part of the book is called an unlikely bohemia. In Athens, Georgia, in the 80s, if you were young and willing to live without much money, anything seemed possible. Magic sparkled like sweat on the skin of dancers at a party or a club. Promise winked underfoot like the bits of broken glass embedded in the downtown sidewalks. A new world seemed to be emerging out of our creativity, our music, and art, and our politics, but also the way we understood ourselves and related to each other. In my memory, the weight of the air on summer nights made possibility seem like a substance I could hold in my hand. Always, local bands played and people listened, at practice spaces and house parties and venues like the 40 Watt. People went to hear their roommate or their boyfriend or coworker play one night and urged everyone to come and see their group the next. Easy to make and easy to hear, live music was everywhere. We used it to reinvent and express ourselves and connect with each other. We used it to live. After the clubs let out, the scene kept moving until dawn. Small groups climbed the fences at apartment complexes no one would admit to living in one and went skinny dipping. Sometimes people walked to the big Victorian house on Hill Street and danced to mixtapes in the hall between the rolled back pocket doors until their clothes dripped with sweat and their heads spun. Occasionally, at midnight, a small drama troupe would perform an original play up and down the aisles of the 24-hour Kroger. Film buffs too young to see movies like Sleeper, Raging Bull, and Paper Moon when they came out watched them for free in the air-conditioned quiet of the seventh floor of the University of Georgia's library. Often, people paired up, going home with the person they were seeing or an acquaintance or someone they had just met. One perfect July night, I lay naked with a friend on the cool cement floor of a screen porch as the wet heat thinned and the crickets rasped, and we talked about music until dawn. Possibility proved more addictive than the beer everyone drank and the drugs many people took. We were unlikely people in an unlikely place. No one expected us to do these creative things. No one who mattered thought that we would make a new kind of American bohemia. But Athens' kids built the first important small-town American music scene and the key early site of what would become alternative or indie culture. We had grown up anything but alternative. Home was a new version of the South created by desegregation, interstates, air conditioning, and airports. Our parents had mostly enjoyed the rewards, a hard-earned success that had been knocked back in the last decade by the oil crisis, stagflation, and the Reagan recession. Our schools practiced a form of neglect that suggested racial integration was easy, feminism unnecessary, and gay sexuality non-existent. None of that was true, of course, but white, middle-class kids often skated over the consequences. On some vague level, we sensed we were living in a changed and changing world, yet the adults around us seemed to be in denial, clinging to old ideas about life and work and community. I'm just going to skip a little ahead.
0: Sure.
1: The scene was our answer to what we understood as the failures and limits of our America, and our participation in this collective creativity transformed us. In my case, the scene took an unhappy accounting major confused about politics, and years later, spit out a feminist, anti racist scholar determined to live her life as art. Along the way, I waited tables and catered, made rugs and wall hangings out of old clothes, took up painting and the cello, earned a master's degree in history, and co founded and ran a local venue. When I left Athens to start a history PhD program elsewhere, I took that magical sense of possibility with me and used it to weather the perils of graduate school and the academic job market. My story was not unique. The scene changed everything and everyone that I knew. Middle-aged now and a historian and the mother of college kids myself, I can see how the things we learned, question the givens, find something to do that engages your passions, build community into whatever you do, and stop often for beauty and pleasure, radically transformed the trajectories of our lives. From the late 70s origins of Bohemian Athens to the early 90s, when Seattle became the center of American alternative culture, the Athens scene produced amazingly good music, from famous groups like the B-52s and R.E.M. and Widespread Panic, to critics' darlings like Pylon and Vic Chestnut, and acts that built a grassroots fan base one show at a time, like the Squalls and Mercyland. But the scene also transformed the punk idea that anyone could start a band and to the even more radical idea that people in unlikely places could make a new culture and imagine new ways of thinking about the meaning of the good life and the ties that bind humans to each other. The history of the Athens scene proves that people you would not expect in places you would not have thought about can create a better world. It also reveals how cultural rebellion can transform human experience.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks so much for reading that. Sure. Um, I think that gives a really great f- kind of flavor of the book. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that passage is it almost seems like uh, it might be the introduction to a memoir, which is very much not what your book is. I mean, you you know you you kind of weave in your personal story a little bit, but it is mostly kind of a, a work of uh, you know American studies or or history. So what was it like to kind of use your training as a historian to analyze a period and a place? that you'd actually lived through?
1: Well, it was actually really fun. I mean, <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, the, the time that has passed really helps, yeah. ha- helped me a lot. Um, I think it would have been hard to sort of wear those two hats at the same time if this was, for me, a recent history. But when you're looking back at a phase of your life that, that, that has been, you know, that's a couple of decades in the past, um, that seemed, at least it seemed to me to be more doable, um, it, you know, it, certainly it was at times challenging, but one of the things I, I think that really helped me was I interviewed lots and lots and lots of people, about a hundred people, about their participation in the scene. And I saw how often people get the details wrong, even as they have they tell you some story that really captures something important about their experience or about the scene itself. And so I, I, I was humbled by that, and I, that made me just be really, really careful to check not only, other people's interviews against what I knew from the written record or what I could find in other sources, but also to check my own memories. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I tried as much as is possible to use the same methods with my own self. You know, if I, you know, think of myself as interviewing myself as I as I did with others.
0: Yeah, I I don't remember who it was. I feel like it was maybe William Cronin who said that history and memory are two armies fighting over the same terrain. Uh,
1: I don't know who said it, but it's it's an apt, it's an apt phrase.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Athens. So Athens, Georgia, it's a, a small uh, town. Uh, the University of Georgia is, is there. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about kind of what this place was like circa 1977 or whatever?
1: Uh, ugly, <laughs> small, <laughs> um, extremely isolated uh, you know, not, not very, um, you know, you wouldn't think of it as a place with anything very sophisticated going on that, that might not be entirely fair, uh, to the university, but certainly, um, outside of the kind of formal halls of academia, not, not a whole lot going on, uh, outside of that in any, in any kind of broader cultural sense. Um, and the town was just very, very isolated. Uh, it, was, it was actually pretty hard to get there from Atlanta at that time. The, the roads that have been built since, still hard, actually, to get there from Atlanta. There, there's no sort of major interstate. You have to take roads with a lot of stoplights either way. But even um, the sort of more direct routes that exist now didn't exist then. Um, the interstates really bypass Athens Uh you know, there's no, not really a working airport. Um, there's an airport that occasionally has flights, but it's not an airport that many people use because it's too expensive. Um, it's just a hard to get to place. It's, it's isolated. Um, and it was really known for bulldog football and probably uh fraternity and sorority life at the university.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, was that isolation part of the, the kind of, was that one of the ingredients that made it what it was? I mean, it was not a place where it was easy to to get out and go see a show, uh, you know, somewhere else. It wasn't the suburbs where you could, you know, go into the city and, and get your culture. Right. So, I mean, was that part of what made it uh, this kind of, uh, I don't know, pressure cooker?
1: Yeah, that's certainly part of it. People absolutely did road trip to Atlanta to see music. Lots of folks from Athens, for example, went to see the Sex Pistols when they played um, in Atlanta, their first show in the U.S. Uh, bizarrely enough, was in Atlanta, um, and people <laughs> went to that. Um, so people would do that, but that was a pretty, you know, a pretty major haul. It's going to take you almost two hours, <laughs> you know, yeah. to get there. Um, so I, I think the thing about isolation is, in some ways, I mean, it's absolutely key, but in other ways, the Early sort of press about Athens when music critics, underground music critics in particular, first discover Athens, they really over-exaggerate the isolation. So I wanna I wanna both say yes, it's isolated, but I also yeah. want to say that it's not so isolated um, as the kind of myth of Athens suggests. There are people in Athens that have lived in other places that um read art magazines, music magazines. I mean, you can read those free in the Georgia University of Georgia Library. Um, there's a, there was a well-stocked newsstand, Barnett's downtown. I mean, people people read the Village Voice. People read um, music magazines from England and from elsewhere. New York Rocker you could buy in town for years. So people had a sense of what was going on. And also some people traveled back and forth. And, you know, I think that really the key figure there is, is a guy named Jerry Ayers, who later changes his name to Jeremy Ayers, who grows up in Athens. His dad's a professor and moves to New York City as People always did and you know, one of the things I'm arguing is before Athens, if you wanted to be Jerry Ayers, you had to move. So right. he moved to New York and became a part of, of Andy Warhol's factory scene, uh, transformed himself into the drag queen, Silva Finn, wrote for Interview Magazine, hung out at the factory, got to be friends with all the famous drag queens. Uh, and he his friends from Athens, who just happened to be Keith Strickland and Ricky Wilson, came to visit him. Uh, so they, too, actually got, a, got to see up close and personal that, that kind of creative um, flux around Andy Warhol um, with the music and, and the artists uh, and, uh, and other kinds of performance. And so people had some sense of what was going on in other places. So isolation, it's like the sweet spot. There's enough isolation, right. <laughs> but there's also a little bit of knowledge, right? Right.
0: And there's also a, a big public university there, right? I mean, that's a, a big part of the story is that anytime there's a, you know, a, I, I don't know, 20,000 students or something, there's going to be some people who are interested in, you know, cool stuff, right?
1: Yeah, the big public university is absolutely key. And I, you know, I think people just forget how hard it was to get information pre-internet. Um, You really couldn't get access to materials unless you were near a university library or one of the few really robust municipal libraries like New York Public Library. You know, most places didn't have a library like New York Public Library. So university libraries really provided that service. And that was absolutely key. People could go and read the old bound periodicals. They could watch all kinds of sort of what are thought of as classic, um, important films, old films of all kinds, listen to all kinds of recordings of music and other things from all over the world that were collected in the music library, all the kind of things that people can access today through streaming services and through the Internet, people could get through the library. So, so that was really, really huge. And then, you know, there were some professors, a few professors that really sparked people's imagination or encouraged people to investigate more deeply into certain things that caught their interest
0: is there a connection between the kind of sound that came out of Athens and the fact that there was a university there? I mean, it it seems to me like there's kind of a, I don't know, a kind of uh, self-taught primitiveness to early punk. And then a little bit more of a sense of irony, a little bit more of a consciousness of like a historical moment in, in later new wave bands who are often associated with universities or art schools, like the talking heads at RISD or, you know, galaxy 500 at Harvard or something like, do you think there was a, I mean, we're, I feel like I'm about to answer my own question, but like, is college rock a real thing?
1: Um, no. I mean, you know, I mean, in the same way that all genres aren't real things, really, outside of the business of the you know music industry, yeah. and yet at the same time, they have meaning for people. So, so uh, I guess I'm going to give that classic answer of yes and no. <laughs> it, it is totally and it fun, isn't yeah. a, a real thing, but. But I I do think that um, what is real about college rock is that it is it is a genre that is so indebted to college radio and college radio is very eclectic. But it's also very much, you know, radio stations on college campuses, you know, blasting their their music to college students. Um, So that is a certain segment of the market that is, you know, college students who don't want to listen to commercial radio. So yeah. so that is a kind of bounding off of the audience from other audiences that I think it's, it's worth thinking about. And, and in that sense, the, what I mean by the music industry in relation to college rock isn't, isn't the music industry sort of as we always understand it, but just the sort of structures that are in place, you know, who, who is defining college rock, who is circulating it. And I think the key, key there is college radio. But back to your bigger question... I mean, I don't really think there is an Athens sound. And I think that's part of my answer would be there is not really one sound. But there is early on, and it's really powerful for a long time, a kind of um, interest in amateurism in music and the idea that you need to create your own style of playing, that you don't need to copy what other people are doing, that you shouldn't play covers unless you radically reconstruct them and then you should only play them in jest or in irony or in your encore <laughs> you Wait, should it's a
0: Batman um, theme song you could cover.
1: Exactly. And you yeah. should you should you should make your own music and you should, you know, figure out your own way to do something. And if you happen to have spent your high school years playing guitar in your room or in the in bands, marching band or jazz band, you should deny that. And pretend like you didn't do any of those things (laughs) and that you just sort of sprung fully formed uh, when you, when you, when you actually founded a band and you learned to play sort of your, your, your instrument in your band. But I, but I do think that amateurism, while not always true in fact, is really, really central to both what comes, what Athens bands do have in common sound wise, which, which is not a lot, but it is, I think that is one of the key characteristics is they're creating various kinds and sounds, various forms of music that don't foreground a lot, that, that don't sort of scream at you craft and musicianship.
0: Right. Not a lot of solos in a lot of these bands.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, so this, you talked about this idea of wanting to appear like you kind of emerged, fully formed. And I feel like the B-52s really feel that way. They have such a uh, you know distinct, weird aesthetic, such a weird sound and also a look. Uh, I mean, they're on the cover of your book because they they are a better looking band than any other of the bands that you write about just in terms of like, yeah, that's a great picture and it really feels like it says something. So um, what were the kind of secret uh, influences or ingredients that went into the b 52s Yeah,
1: I i just want to say before passing on that, the, the, that picture, I mean, the, Cindy and Kate are wearing... Um, fake fur muffs on their heads as wigs. I just love that. Absolutely love that. And that is literally a picture of their very first gig. Um, You know, I think that the B-52s, the idea that the outside world has that they spring fully formed is, is really because of that isolation that exists in Athens and the fact that they are practicing some, in some ways behind closed doors for a long time before they really take their, their music on the road. and, and, um it also I think has to do with what I was talking about before that Keith and Ricky have this this kind of experience of of the wider world. Jerry Ayers moves back to Athens and the they the two of them and another guy who's a student in the art school, Robert Waldrup and and Jerry are inseparable and they are creating their own kind of performance art on the streets of Athens, um, doing all kinds of crazy things. I mean, especially given the state of Athens at the time, um, these things might not turn heads today, but then they certainly did. Um, they would do things like set up their living room furniture at a, at a busy intersection, like complete with rugs and lamps and sofas, (laughs) and then just sit there all day and like drink tea and read books, Um, they, they, they basically, uh, you know, what we would, they, they went and like took over a neighborhood Mardi Gras party, um, with, you know, face makeup and all these like bizarre Victorian costumes and just joined into this neighborhood. Some little, you know, little neighborhood in Athens was having a Mardi Gras party and parade. Like a block party, right? Exactly. You know, just a, you know, very suburban, like middle-class family kind (laughs) of thing. And they, they, they sort of crashed it. Um, you know, they would do those kinds of things in Athens. So they were working on their performance art a long time and on their, what we might think of as drag practices, dress up performance, what you can do by dressing up, you know, what kinds of, of changes, what kinds of, you know, ideas about fluidity and what is possible that you can create with those, with, with, with clothes, with, with costuming um, and when they started, they, most of the music was on tape. Uh, they, they had, uh, uh, Ricky had a big reel to reel tape, tape machine and they set that up at their first couple of gigs. Um, and played, they, they basically are performing to mostly taped music. Um, so I think the thing that you have to really understand about the B 52s is that there is much a kind of New York burlesque performance art show as they are a musical show. And I don't say that to take away from their music, because I actually think they're an amazing band that has not always gotten, um, gotten the recognition that they deserve plenty of popularity, but not always the critical recognition they deserve. But, um, but they, they really start out as much more about performance. And then they realize, wow, this is really, this is really going somewhere. And then they sort of behind closed doors, practice um, working on the musical part so that they're playing live. But but uh, but but it's all important in the B-52s, both the both the visuality of their performance and their style and um, and and the music.
0: And you you write about the queerness of the B-52s, that they were really uh, they kind of wore that on their sleeves. Right. Which was I, I imagine that must have uh, by, by itself been quite striking in uh, the Georgia of the late 70s. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, one of the things I hope this book will do is sort of debunk some sort of easy kind of assumptions that people make about what the South is like in these time periods. And um, and there is an out gay community, somewhat out, let me just say, somewhat out, somewhat closeted gay community in Athens, um, organized to some degree around the art school, around people that are current or former students or grad students, professors, and people that work at the university, but that are friends with these folks. And Um, it's not completely out in today's understanding of that, of those terms, but it's something that people know something about and you can find it and connect with it if you want to, if you work hard enough at it. And I do think that's something that's really hard to talk about now is that we seem to have an understanding of, of being out or not being out as a very clear sort of either or dichotomy. And also I think it's hard for people today to understand that there was a time period when People really didn't talk about these things. They didn't, most people didn't talk about or sort of publicly proclaim what category they belong to in terms of their gender and sexuality in ways that I think are very, very important to people today. Um, And so it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to talk about because the language and the categories don't really line up with today. But at the same time, it was really quite radical um, and really important in terms of the origins of the scenes. I think that's something people really don't understand is that there, there really is a a kind of queer culture origins to a lot of what's going on in Athens, um, and the B-52s and, and some of the people that follow them are absolutely central to that.
0: In a way that that relationship to queerness feels very contemporary that it's like, it's fluid. It's, it's kind of transversing all of these boundaries. It's not these kind of rigid nineties identity politics, uh, I, ideas about you know I'm going to stake my ground on this one unmoving uh, sort of plot of identity and and that's the end of it, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I found, like I said, I found this hard to talk about just because of the language and understandings are so different today. But I sure. think I think we we sort of have this idea that you you have to you have to claim a category that's the way to expand freedom, and you have to claim it and live it. And um, I think these figures that I'm talking about really thought that not claiming a category, given that the categories were so limited <laughs> at yeah. the time, the public categories, that the way to have freedom and to have greater, greater freedom to express yourself and be yourself and just be was to reject the categories. Um, now, I think you know, the flip side of that is it does allow some people to sort of play a bit with being a little bit under the radar, somewhat in the closet, and you could say, have it both ways you know, not Mm -hmm. having to make that kind of public stand. And, you know, people have certainly criticized Michael Stipe for that um, over time. Uh, On the other hand, you you also have a situation where a lot of people, because of that fluidity and freedom, are able to um, expand their sense of who they are personally, to live a life they might not ever have imagined, to actually have a journey where they they become something they didn't even know existed when they were 18, say, um, yeah. and and to produce a lot of really interesting art and music along the way. So I think it's important to realize that it can cut both ways, but not just to see it as a neg. that fluidity is not just a negative of people that are trying not to come out and not sort of bear the consequences, if that makes sense, of that sure. choice, um, people really can also exist in that that kind of fluidity as a, as a way to expand the possibilities. Um, on the other hand, there were people that were 100 percent out. I mean, Mark Klein of Love Tractor. I, I had a great interview with him where he said, "Why do you think I was so popular? I was, you know, I was out from the moment I stepped foot <laughs> on campus as a you know as a freshman." <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you know somebody like Ricky Wilson who was telling his friends that he was gay, his high school friends that he was gay in 1970 in Athens. And just to put that into perspective, 1970 is the year that in Athens, they finally shut down the black high school and fully integrated the Jeez. public school system. And yeah. Ricky Wilson, at the same time that is going on, he's telling his friends that he's, that he's gay. So I think that's really pretty radical. <laughs> so yeah. um, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is just to show um, you know, to sort of try to understand that maybe sometimes we need to think about what's radical in context. And the, and the B-52s, you know, it's certainly high school. I was a high school kid in America at the time when they when they started putting out their albums. And I remember this. It was like all the high school kids knew they were gay, even if they didn't, you know, come out on the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and say, we're gay. <laughs> you
0: know, Right. right. Yeah. So. In the same way that, you know, people kind of knew Andy Warhol or Truman Capote or, you know, whoever, like they don't, they didn't have to say it for it to, to, for it to be clear to to most people who are paying attention.
1: Absolutely. And again, I think that's just so far into how, how things go now that people have a hard time. I know that when I try to teach my call, my college students, you know, at at UVA, these things, they have a hard time understanding how, how can something be so unspoken and yet so unknown, so, so known by everybody, but not directly spoken about yeah so
0: um so one of the ways you construct the book is that there's kind of major bands that you devote quite a bit of sp- space to and uh the the next one after the b-52s is pylon which is a really great band uh sort of a post-punk dance punk band but that you know is not as well known today as some of the other acts you talk about so uh, what made Pylon special and, and what made it, I mean, you know, you talk about what Peter Buck in 1988 says Pylon's the greatest rock and roll band in America after that, after R.E.M.'s on the cover of Rolling Stone say, you know, with that, with the headline America's greatest rock and roll band, he says, no, 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 it's Pylon. So what made, what made people love Pylon?
1: Well, first, I just want to say it was Bill Berry, although your story is great. You no, know, no, no, it's okay. It's just for the <laughs> no, record. It was
0: the Bill that's, that's Berry, yeah.
1: but, but it's okay. It's the same point. It's the same point. Um, and, you know, I think that Pylon is so, well, first of all, their music is just really incredible to listen to, especially live. I mean, I don't think that their recordings for the most part capture, with the exception of some live recordings that have been put out, capture the excitement and energy of their live shows completely. Um, I will note that they are actually re-releasing their entire catalog this fall, so be on the lookout for that if you've missed Pylon um, with a lot of um, you know engineering, et cetera. So maybe we'll get some of the magic of that live sound in those re-released um, recordings. But um, they were really just in so many ways the definitive Athens band. I mean, the B-52s, hugely, hugely important. But because the B-52s really founded the Athens scene, the scene wasn't developed enough to support them. They, mm-hmm. they couldn't stay in Athens if they actually wanted to be serious musicians. You know, there was no sort of infrastructure at all. If they wanted to play for A&R reps, for, for, for labels, they had to actually rent a venue. If they were trying to figure out, you know, how to understand the contracts these record companies were offering them, Ricky Wilson would go to the law library at Georgia and look up stuff in the, <laughs> in the books in <laughs> the law library and talk to the librarians, yeah. right? There was no infrastructure for them to, to access. And so, you know, people, you know, sort of blamed them for leaving, but, you know, if they had been a couple of years behind themselves, they could have stayed, but they, they created it all, but it wasn't developed enough to support them. So, so they left, but that, but that left the the ground wide open, so to speak. And Pylon really became kind of the quintessential band of the early Athens scene. Um, in, in part because they so embodied this this sort of spirit of amateurism. I was talking about um, Michael Lahusky and um, Randy Bewley learned to play their instruments, bass and guitar in the band. Um, Vanessa had the singer had had been sort of in church choirs and and a little bit in a like high school choir, but she really honed her chops as well in the band. So they really embodied that kind of Athens ethos of amateurism. Uh, the drummer, Curtis Crow had drummed a little bit for other bands. So uh, he's a little bit of a has a little bit of a different history. But so they they embodied that amateurism. They were all art students, all four of them, UGA art students. And they really took to heart what they learned in the art school, which is that you don't really have to have expertise. You don't really have to, you know, know everything. You can just experiment with different mediums. Just, you know, if you're in photography and you want to make sculpture, just do it, just seize, seize the things at hand and do it. And that was really the spirit of the art school, um, almost like a kind of punk ethos, but in the visual arts world. And as I said, they were all art students. Um, So they really just not only had this amazingly quirky original sound that you could dance to, which was absolutely key in Athens, um, from the b52s on you had to be able to dance to it but they also just really in many ways created the whole kind of myth of athens it's really based on their story um and and then the key the clincher is that you know they they broke up on what broke up at what everybody thought of as as sort of their, the cusp of fame um the people in the band didn't so much see it that way they they felt like they had kind of plateaued at a certain level and it wasn't fun anymore but um, they were drawing huge crowds in Athens and Atlanta in 1983 when they broke up. They were they had been asked, for example, to open for U2 on one of their first big tours of America. A dream gig, right, for any sure. up-and-coming band. Um, but, they, but they didn't like it. They felt like these U2 fans were booing them and didn't care about their music. And nothing about that was fun. And so that kind of art for art's sake, you know, we did this to... Ha- because we had this original vision we wanted to put out there, and we've done that, and that's what we cared about, and now we're gonna break up because it's not fun anymore. Um, that really helped cement their reputation um, as this kind of mythic Athens band.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, there's definitely the like, I don't know, punk kid in me is like, yeah, props, that's awesome to break up right as you're maybe about to become successful. Like, that's a really cool move.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and they, um, they, they just, you know, they, they stayed around in town after the, after they broke up the band. And so, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd know about Pylon and then you'd go to Kinko's copies and, you know, you'd, Vanessa would be ringing up your, you know, your Xeroxes. And it was, she, it was just like this royalty thing, you know, (laughs) (laughs) here was this legendary figure and she was just in town living her life, um, So I I, I don't want to take away at all when I say this from their music, but I think they became so important to Athens as a scene because they had this amazing music, but also they had this amazing story.
0: Yeah. And that also speaks, I mean, the fact that she's still working at the coffee shop after the band breaks up speaks to the fact that like you could become a pretty big Athens band and still not be making any real money.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're an interesting example though, because they actually all quit their day jobs fairly early on and were able to make enough money playing New York. People in New York just loved them. And they, at that time, they could get guarantees in New York, and Athens was so cheap they could mostly live on it. So she didn't have to work at Kinko's the last couple of years of being in. Being in Pylon, um, that was a job she went back to. But your your overall point is actually a good one. That is, you could be a pretty dang popular Athens band and sell out the local clubs and still be working, you know, a pretty crappy day job, <laughs> you know? Yeah, sure. um, it wasn't true for Vanessa, but it was true for many people.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and you mentioned going to New York. And it, I found it so fascinating that like early on in the book with, with uh, B-52s and Pylon, there's they're really not much of a scene built up yet. And so a lot of these bands are playing like their third gig at CBGB's or something, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's again, that sort of story about isolation and also about non-isolation. I mean, you know, there there is enough of a scene that they don't have to go play in New York. But what's interesting is when they decide to go play out of town, they drive 19 hours. That's, that's right. what people would say at the time it took to get to New York, to New York City. They don't think about going... Even to Atlanta, <laughs> you know, yeah. they don't. Yeah. They don't think about going to D.C. Although you know that that scene is beginning to emerge there. I mean, later people are playing. You know, for sure they're playing in D.C. Um, uh, what is it, the Nine Thirty Club? Isn't that the club in D.C.? They're yeah, playing, that's, the D- they're, that's in D.C. You know, yeah. they're playing in New York, but but you know, people talked about Pylon at a certain point as commuting to New York, which wasn't entirely right. <laughs> fair. They they played. They they went on tour with Gang of Four out. Mm-hmm. Out across the Midwest, for example, into California, but there, there's some truth in that that they they played mostly in New York.
0: And part of that is sort of about their sound, right? I mean, like if I played you Pylon next to ESG and told you they were from the same city, you'd be like, "Yeah, that makes sense."
1: Yeah, yeah. Some of it's their sound, um, and, and and they're and they're very performative. You know, they have this just incredibly. Um, I mean, it's, well, especially Vanessa. I mean, Vanessa has this kind of charismatic stage. Pre- Uh, presence that sort of takes it's almost like a mashup of drag queens and southern beauty queens and like all these kinds of stereotypes. And um, she sort of creates this incredible um, persona as a performer that I think people really appreciate in New York. And, you know, the band also doesn't, you know, people's people's whatever their sexuality is, the, the band doesn't come across as a kind of traditional quartet of straight people or, you know, obviously it's not all guys, but so that also makes it more difficult to play other places. I mean, I think that is something, you know, people don't, again, don't really realize. I mean, the absolute kind of, you know, widespread homophobia at the time and, you know, Atlanta and Athens were pretty damn enlightened for most places in Georgia. I mean, most, excuse me, most places in America in the late seventies and eighties. I mean, you know, you have San Francisco, you have New York and you have, not a whole lot else. Um, and Atlanta had a big gay community. Athens had something of a gay community. And so there really was some safe space there, but you know, there were reasons that bands that weren't REM that could, could at least pass as four straight white guys didn't play everywhere.
0: Yeah. Um, speaking of REM, it really seems like REM is the first band, at least the first big band that you write about that, uh, you know, consciously tried to sound, Southern. I mean, not in a Leonard Skinnerd sense, but they're kind of mining the, the folk culture of, of the region to a much greater extent than the B-52s or, or Pylon are. Uh, could you talk about the, the way that they kind of constructed um, a, an identity, maybe a myth, maybe a persona of uh, being this kind of Southern band?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Although I would want to say that in part, I think people don't see those other bands as Southern because of sort of outsiders ideas about what Southern is. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, the B-52s, for example, are doing a very interesting kind of playing with, on the one hand, a kind of drag queen culture of performing a kind of exaggerated femininity, um, which they've put on to Kate it's on the women in that band instead of the men. So that's interesting, but it's also very much a kind of homage to working class women in Athens who are still wearing beehive hairdos and still Mm -hmm. wearing those kinds of clothes. And it's both at the same time. And so there is something, and also they're so indebted to James Brown and to funk and to those kind of black um, soul traditions and that, you know, the deep Southern roots there. So I think there's a lot about the B-52s that, that is Southern, but but um, but, I, but I do get your point about um, a certain kind of interest in, at least in Southern folk culture or ideas about what is thought to be folk culture that R.E.M. is playing with. And it's pretty interesting because given R.E.M.'s trajectory, they don't, they don't start out there. They actually go through a phase of being um, seen as almost too poppy or too interesting to, you know, Greeks and frat people from the university in the early days, and some of the more bohemian sort of scenesters look down on them as too pop. And then they go through this period when they signed to IRS of being like anti-Athens because they and their record company think Athens is over and it's oversaturated. It's, you know, too much out there. Love Tractor's got an album out. Pylon's got an album out, you know. B 52s are have out there, you know, there's just too much Athens. So they go through this period that no one later remembers where they're telling music critics and journalists, oh, it doesn't mean anything that we're from Athens. I don't know why everybody has to always say that. Um, so it's interesting to see them circle back around, um, especially by the time of reckoning and fables, to um, to this kind of interest in the region and in thinking about. You know, what kind of models of of Southern culture, what it means to be a creative person in the South can we find that are not that are not problematic in ways that we don't want to emulate, like um, some of the models that grow out of later Southern rock or the kind of, you know, sort of, you know, white supremacist uh, University of Georgia not, not that all undergraduates are like this, but a, the certain right. sort of aspects of the Greek culture. So at the like time.
0: Confederate flag waving at the Allman Brothers show. They were exactly. not trying to do that. Yeah.
1: yeah, and so what is a model that will work if we're not going to appropriate black southerness, which we don't think is a good thing for us to do? we we're, we've you know we've all all of these folks. This is another interesting part of the story. Almost all of these people I'm talking about are go- going to school when they're in like secondary school they're living through school integration
0: mm-hmm. so they're
1: living through these experiences of their schools integrating and the kinds of things that are happening as as communities grapple with that and so they they have a sense that they know that's not right they don't want to be racist and they don't want to be appropriating black culture <laughs> but right. what what in white culture white southern culture would you want to emulate you know what is what is something that is that is you know, that you might want to identify with or see in a positive light. And, you know, Michael Stipe is exposed to through people he knows in the art school. There's art professors that teach teach a class on folk culture where they take their students to literally to visit with folk artists and folk musicians um, across rural Georgia. They, they get in a van every Saturday and drive around and visit these people. And Michael doesn't take the class, but he's got friends that do. And knows people that, you know, meet people that way. Um, And he gets interested in um, these folk artists and musicians, these rural white and black southerners. And you really can see that influence on the band um, with that second, third, with the second, third album.
0: I'd love to kind of like dig a little deeper into that question of appropriation, because it really does seem like if you're going to be a rock band, you kind of have two options, right? You have the kind of I mean, this is schematic, obviously, but there's kind of the Rolling Stones option and the Velvet Underground option, where like you can you can really you know lean into the fact that this is black music and you're a white guy playing it, but you're still going to you know do your best I don't know Helen Wolf impression, or you can make music that sounds pretty white and therefore kind of leaves behind a huge amount of what makes rock and roll great, Uh, and that's certainly a tension that comes out in the Athens scene. So I mean. You know, from your perspective of somebody who's spent a lot of time thinking and, and studying these issues, like, what do you, how do you kind of suss out the ethics of uh, being a, a white rock and roll band?
1: Um, I think that the ethics are problematical no matter what you do, you know?
0: It's kind <laughs> I mean, of a no-win I mean, situation. It is a no-win situation. I you could get me out of that double bind. It
1: is a no-win situation, but I think, um, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting is to try to look at what people are trying to do in their context context. And we can always then say it didn't work or it didn't mm-hmm. succeed or what they thought was, was anti-racist turned out not to be. But I do think it's interesting to try to puzzle through, maybe this is just because I'm a historian, you know, what, what they're thinking at the time. And, you know, Pete Buck read all of, you know, all the, all the music critics, you know, he, he read Lester Bangs. he, he read, he read this kind of the material where people are arguing about this, you know, the, the period in no wave music in New York, when, you know, some people are doing some pretty damn offensive um, kind of appropriations or are talking about how they, you know, they're, they're, they're anti the white nigger. And, you know, there's just a lot of kind of offensiveness all with a kind of, you know, uh, irony underpinning it, and a and a sort of understanding that they're trying to be anti-racist. But I'm thinking right. of James, James Chance, isn't it? Who yeah, who James Chance some, is the
0: Contortion. Yeah,
1: yeah. So there's some yeah. pretty offensive stuff going on, and 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 he's aware of this stuff. I mean, others in the band are probably too, but he he really is the kind of he's rock the rock music. historian. Yeah, he is, and music collector, right of the of the of the group. And he he's really you know he knows that that stuff is going on, and so. REM really sees, you know, also they're, they're living in Georgia. They're living in a, in a completely different place. They, they like, you know, Mike Mills and Bill Berry, they went to school in Macon when schools were being integrated there. So Mm -hmm. they, they lived through this. So they had a different, it wasn't a, it wasn't something out there distant. You know what I mean? It was, it was close. So they definitely took the, we're going to try not to appropriate black music. Or black sounds, or to in any way, shape, or form do something that might seem to be a kind of impersonation of blackness. Um, yeah. That was what they were intending and trying to do.
0: It um, seems like they did. They they managed. They pulled it off. Okay. I mean, it seems they, they, like they're <laughs> certainly, you know, in the in the storied history of white people uh, trying to figure out how to relate to black music, they're certainly not not a, a major chapter.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that that was also one of the things that was so appealing about this world of folk musicians and folk artists for young people in Athens, including Michael Stipe in the 80s, is that these folks are white and black. Um, There is a kind of understanding that they're getting from people like Art Rosenbaum, who's teaching drawing and painting at the university, but is also a famous, you know, folk revivalist musician and collector of that music. You know, they're getting a sense of this as a kind of you know, uh, as an interracial tradition that's there in the South that actually is something not racist that is going on there that you can actually be inspired by and and get into.
0: So there was a sense that maybe the rural South was less rigidly segregated than the, the, the urban or small town South?
1: Well, I don't know about it being less rigidly segregated, but there was a sense that there was a tradition of sort of quirky eccentric mostly men but both white and black making their own art you know following their vision often religious vision sometimes a vision fueled by mental health problems but all of it could be lumped under the idea of their own quirky particular individualistic vision Um, and they would build these sort of yards installations that covered you know their yards and their houses and the surrounding areas. Um, and sometimes they would also be musicians, Howard Finster, most famously paint painter and a musician, um, and a preacher as well. Um, but, uh, but other figures like that too, um, John and Ruth Williams who create this, this strange set of installations. I think they call it Bible land. I might have that wrong, but it's near Philomath, Georgia. Philomath of course is a name that's of a town that shows up in an REM song. And, uh, you know, they were just really interested in that. There was a kind of interesting intersection between their vision of indie rock—that you follow your own vision, you know, your own eccentric, quirky, your thing. You know, you you don't, you play the guitar your way. You come up with your own eccentric tuning. You you know, this is what you do. Um, and these amateur artists, right? And so there's this valorization of amateurism in the Athens music scene. And these visual artists are untrained in a formal sense so there's that kind of connection to amateurism so it's very inspiring for people
0: yeah i could i can imagine so yeah sort of slumming in a class sense is maybe less problematic than than doing it in a in a racial sense
1: exactly exactly and, and you know and I, of course they don't and and whoever does right they don't people don't see their actions that way they don't see themselves as slumming in a class right. sense, but sure, you're, sure. but you're right you're right yeah
0: for sure um, so I would love to also talk about a couple more acts. So you write, uh, about some, uh, some bands that, you know, were, were Athens, uh, successes, but never really broke out like Love Tractor, O.K. The Barbecue Killers, what a great band name, The Barbecue Killers. Yeah. So, um, yeah. why was it important for you to kind of tell the story, not only of the bands that we've heard of that we might not know are all connected by being Athens fans, but also, you know these other beloved bands that kind of never, uh, never broke through.
1: Yeah, um, when you're trying to tell the story of a place and of a, of a community, I, I think it gives you a sort of different set of parameters than if you're trying to tell a story about this particular moment in popular music history and what what over time becomes known as indie or alt music, alternative music. So because I was focused on this place, Athens and the scene there, um, that gave me the kind of You know, leeway to talk about bands that might be important in Athens, um, or might might not even have tons of fans, but be important in terms of how people thought about the scene or how the scene developed. And so, you know, that's just a different set of 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 things that are helping you to make choices. I mean, my only regret is that I couldn't talk about more of the bands, but Mm -hmm. unfortunately, when you sort of talk about the history of bands you know it, it 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 can kind of kill the narrative flow so there's a lot of bands that i had to leave out that were that were really great bands and bands that meant a lot to people in athens but um but i um one thing i think that is interesting though is that bands love tractor actually had for example a, a really big following outside of athens for for a while i mean they would tour with they had the same booking agent that was booking like Husker Du and Ten Thousand Maniacs and mm-hmm. and other bands and they would they would tour with um with replacements and you know groups like that in the mid 80s when the, all the guys finished school a lot of them were art students too um, and they they developed a pretty pretty robust following they also did very well in new york some music critic wrote about them as the, in a way that suggested that all the guys in the band were gay which was not true but they were all cute and so Mark Klein then told me, you know, that they would just they would just pack them in in New York because, <laughs> because they became kind of the band for a certain segment of the New York crowd. Um, so so they they certainly, you know, they're, maybe they're not as well known now, but um, they actually uh, uh, somebody, for example, MTV had a contest. To, about something where the, the, where the winning prize was to get to spend the weekend in Athens, uh, with Mark Klein showing you around Athens. So, you know, they, they had a certain, a certain yeah. fame for a while. Um, but some of the other bands, I think, um, you know, certainly what you're saying is really true of, but they were just super, super important in the scene. I mean, a band like the barbecue killers, it's just really hard to imagine that Laura Carter wouldn't have become a just na- national level you know, famous um, if that band had come around a little bit longer, you know, in the sort of age of Riot Girl, for example. I think I think she 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 was a little bit too too much ahead of her time, perhaps um, with a kind of incredibly charismatic gender bending kind of performance and also a really hard edge sound that wasn't wasn't exactly like West wasn't West Coast hardware or even, hardcore or even, even uh, Washington, D.C. hardcore, but a, but a harder sound than most of the bands in Athens, um, where, where they were very, very popular. But I do think, like I said, if they had come around, you know, just a few years later, um, seems like they, they, they would have become super well known uh, nationally. Um, and they toured a lot, even as it was. But, uh, you know, but I, I wanted to talk about what those bands did in terms of the dynamics of
0: the local scene. So speaking of the dynamics of the local scene, it seems like at a certain point, Athens stops being, you know, an unlikely bohemia and just starts becoming one of the major American centers of alternative culture. So when and why and maybe how did people start kind of coming to Athens because it was Athens and not sort of because they were going to college and then they happened to find out that there was some cool stuff going on?
1: Yeah, I mean and I think that is really the big change. I mean, it it's not sort of a rise and fall arc in terms of the interesting music being made. It's a it's a it's an arc of change that really has to do with the place being being an unlikely and then then being a place that's assumed to be a certain kind of quirky bohemian yeah. place. Um but you know, it's you know, obviously the success of REM. I mean, by the mid mid 80s they're underground famous, <laughs> you know, uh they're they're helping to to make indie music or college rock, whatever, however you want to parse the genres, you know, a major force in the music industry. Um, they're probably the most important band in that. And even though they don't become mainstream famous really until the early 90s, late 80s, a little bit, they start to have some hits, but but thinking, thinking of Losing My Religion as their first global mega hit, right? But but they're already, you know, underground music famous in the late 80s. And so people begin to come to town to sort of follow Michael Stipe around or try to, or, you know, see right. where they live. Um, and that kind of thing begins to happen because of their success. Um, and then the other thing is the the movie um, Athens Inside Out that, that comes out, um, I think. It's made. It's put together in in, in 85, 86, but it really starts to circulate in in eighty seven, and it is, um, it, you know, it plays on MTV. Uh, it plays in in sort of old movie houses near college campuses or on college campuses, um, and it really gives a picture of Athens as that kind of eccentric, eccentric male visionary creative types influenced by folk artists, you know, that, that is the vision of Athens that the film puts out there and it's, and it's mysterious and super interesting to some people and people come to town, begin to come to town looking for that Athens, if that makes sense. I mean, one person I interviewed, Jeff Walls from lots of bands, frankly, but um, Guadalcanal Diary being one of them said that they always said before and after, before and after um, the movie. (laughs) <laughs> you know, right. happens to the out. two
0: periods. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, um, so that, that film, I mean, it doesn't happen right away because of the ways that things circulate in those days. It takes a while for a sort of critical mass of, you know, screenings, late night screenings on, on MTV, et cetera. But over time that, that film really has a huge impact.
0: It's kind of surprising. I mean, you mentioned REM having their first big hit in what 91 or something like that after they'd They've been a band for something like ten years. I mean, it's kind of an amazing amount of time to to be underground heroes and then to kind of have this major breakthrough.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the late eighties, What what year is it? Is it eighty eight when this one goes out to the one I love? The one I love is a is a maybe a top ten hit should have brushed up on my statistics. Um, but, but, <laughs> but it, either it,
0: way it's, it's a while. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, Nirvana's second album is huge and RM yeah. doesn't get huge until out of time. Right. I mean, yeah.
1: absolutely. You know, really, and I, and really again, huge. you know, like I was saying before, like our, you know, B 52s really, they can't be an indie rock band because that isn't, doesn't exist yet. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, sure. they're on Warner brothers. They have to go a different route. Um, you know, Many people have talked about this, Uh, you know, other music writers have talked about it, but it's, you know, worth saying is that REM really helps create a different model. You know, it's not just what they do for the genre of music that they're in um, and help to build it into a genre that has this kind of crossover to the mainstream success in in the late 80s and early 90s, but also that they create a different model of being a band that you can stay in your hometown, that you can manage your career in a, in a way that sort of doesn't make you indebted to your record company where you, where you keep as much control as you possibly can. You keep your expenses down, your payouts down and you, and you manage your own career um, with your own people, you know, hire your own manager, hire your own lawyer that are independent of the industry um, Mm -hmm. and build your career your own way. Um, They create that model. And so, uh, I think that's a really interesting thing about R.E.M. And also one of the reasons why they're such a successful band for so long.
0: Yeah. I, I saw them in 2008 and they were still really great in 2008.
1: Um, yeah. Was that, was when, that was after Bill Berry left, right? Yeah, he left yeah, in was. the late it 90s. Um, right. To me, that was a kind of watershed moment when, when he left. Um, it became clear that. It kind of became clear then, at least to some it, some of the idea, like who's writing what song you began to be able to understand when he left.
0: Yeah, know? right.
1: Um, but yeah, they were they were really a terrific band.
0: Yeah. Um, I'd also love to talk about the kind of the last major artist that you devote a, a ton of time to in the book is Vic Chestnut, uh, who is, you know, one of the greatest American songwriters of the past 40 years, let alone. Uh, one of the one of the greatest songwriters to come out of the Athens scene. Uh, could you for for you know those of our listeners who maybe don't know his music? Could you kind of talk about what made him special and what made him distinctive within the scene?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about him is if if bands like like REM and some of the bands that followed them are intersecting with um, what people at the time thought about as a kind of Southern folk cultures in one particular way. Um, Vic Chestnut has a real indebtedness to those cultures in a different way. And that is a kind of tradition of, of, of storytelling and songs that mm-hmm. has very deep roots in the South. And, um, and he is really, really uh, focused on especially the first couple of albums of his at the beginning of his career on, on, writing on the writing on language on on words on telling stories on using words that people don't expect to hear in songs he's always trying like he'll think of a word that he's like never heard in a song and then he'll try to write a song around it um you know he come he for a while he's an english major at georgia he writes poetry um he's very very interested in the writing of lyrics in ways that hasn't been so central to many hadn't been so central to so many Athens bands, right? Think about the years when you don't know what Michael Stipe is singing, um, and that's the point. Um, it's a kind of sound over content approach, which is also interesting. But mm-hmm. Vic Chestnut really um, more than anybody um, brings storytelling in. He really, in his formative years when he's first in town, um, he spends a lot of time with people from the Athens Folk Music and Dance Society. Um, going to their events, their song swaps and things like that, where they, where they constantly allow him to break their rule that you're, that you're not allowed to play your own music. You know, it's very different from the scene, right. Athens scene. In the Folk Music Society, yeah. you're supposed to be playing folk <laughs> songs, which are yeah. old songs that have been around forever. So they, they, they always just kind of look the other way when he cool. <laughs> begins to bring in his, his own music because they like his music so much. Um, so I think that's one of the really interesting things about Vic is that is, is his sort of interest in the craft of language.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing you mentioned in the book, uh, you, I forget who, but you quote somebody saying that Vic was sort of the scene's town crier. And, yeah. <laughs> and that especially on his first album, I mean his first album is largely these kind of character studies. It's it, very few of the songs seem to be about him or, you know, I don't know, maybe half of the songs are are about him, but, a lot of them are kind of these finely observed portraits of other people. And you sort of say that these, these were actual real people who may have you know recognized themselves in the lyrics.
1: Yeah, um, it was. I think it was Sam Seawright, who was a local artist, a graduate of the art school at, at Georgia, who said that. But um, people were arguing all around town. I will say that when I interviewed people you know, they would tell me, oh, that song that, oh, that's a hundred percent about, you know, X, Y, Z. And then, you know, somebody else I would interview would say, you know, without doubt, they were 100% certain it was about somebody else. Sure. <laughs> so, so, you know, it was hard to actually say specifically because people kept asking me, well, why didn't you reveal the stories behind Vic's songs? I'm like, because people don't agree <laughs> on, right. you know, right. who they're about, but he definitely, it's so clear. He's Writing about the places that he spends time, the coffee shops he spends time in, the the restaurants he's in, the people in town, They're, you know, they are absolutely character studies. Sometimes, probably composites, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is very much writing about the local scene. Um, and for the longest time, I mean, he really is only a local musician. He plays, starts out playing at this coffee shop gallery called The Grit Acoustic. Um, well, he's in a band when he first comes to town called the dashboard yeah. saviors, but when he goes solo, he's playing at the grip by himself, like Friday afternoons forever. And then he gets a gig at the 40 watt and the posters literally will say, you know, Vic Chestnut, you know, it Tuesday, night, na- every Tuesday night till hell freezes over. Cause he plays <laughs> for like more than a year every yeah. Tuesday night. Yeah. And, and he really, um, you know, really hones his skills with these, with this kind of, with these kind of regular gigs, um, in these spaces.
0: Yeah, I could definitely, you know, a song like Soft Picasso definitely seems like it could be about a particular two people or could it be about, you know, hundreds of relationships on every college campus in America.
1: Uh, yeah, That one is definitely about two people
0: that's, oh, that's about most a certain, people yeah. agree
1: on. Yeah. So okay. one of them was a, actually, I think both of them at various times were roommates of Vic's, but they date each other. And that is that is Vic's take, anyway, on their relationship. So. Yeah. It's a great song, absolutely, a really great song. Great
0: song. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love that
1: line live by the scam, die by the scam,
0: live by the scam. Yeah, that's great, that's great. Um, yeah, so that that is, I mean, that's a lot of his songs work this way, but that really does feel like it could work on the pages as, as a sort of confessional, you know, Frank O'Hara type poetry,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you know, Speed Racer is another song like that, oh, which yeah. is one of. One of, I mean, I think you're right. The early songs are not as often about himself. That is one exception, but, but it's about him when he's a kid. Um, but then it's, then it's also about his, his atheism. And, you know, he takes the kind of, he has that wonderful songwriter ability to take the particular and then open it up into some kind of, you know, massively deep important statement about, about humanity, right. From that little particularist beginning.
0: Yeah. I, I just pulled up the lyrics because I wanted to, you know, give, really give a sense of how strange and precise they are. Um, he says, the laws of action and reaction are the closest thing to truth in the universe. So don't try to spray me with your archaic rites of soul. Your vision is a biological one. You know, I mean, yeah. that, that does not sound like uh, what most people would think of as it's not Moon June uh, songwriting
1: it really is a far, far cry from most of the (laughs) lyrical writing going on at the time. I can dodge the thunderbolts. I mean, that's a good one.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. great song. You knew him a bit, right?
1: I knew Vic. Well, um, Vic is, was just, you know, he was an interesting person. I mean, he was a genius and he could be a delightful person and he could be an absolute pain in the ass. And anybody that knew him that doesn't say that is, is just, is just you know covering up the truth um, mm. you know he he uh, he had a lot of demons um, and he struggled with depression and he struggled with uh with you know abuse of substance abuse but um, but he was also a genius and he could be you know he could be incredibly generous but the thing about Vic that that we all used to laugh about in the late 80s was when you would get somebody who'd never seen him perform to come to a show when you would you know sort of you know, mm-hmm. talk you them into it, guy. explain, yeah. you know, this is, this is just ge- genius. You cannot believe <laughs> this. He would be having one of those nights where he had decided to, what one critic generously called his anti-art phase, you know, where he would, because yeah. he would like to violate aud- audience's expectations and he would just be awful on purpose. And it would invariably <laughs> be the night when you'd gotten your, you know, your close coworker who never wanted to go see him. You'd finally talk them into going and, he would be having one of those nights where he basically just said F you to the audience. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that was all part of Vic.
0: Do you, th- I mean, do you think it was entirely, uh, intentional? I mean, I I've definitely known performers who have cultivated a deliberate kind of shabbiness in their presentation so that when they bombed, they could be like, Oh, that was just a, a, a joke on the stupid audience.
1: You know, I think some of it was a defense mechanism and maybe that'd be another way of saying what you're talking about. Some of it was that Um, sometimes I think it really had to do with if he'd had too much to drink or something else, you know, he wouldn't be very good. You know, he couldn't really play his songs or remember his lyrics. Um, So some of it would be that Um, some of it would be his mood. I mean, a lot of the times he'd be he'd be amazing. So I I don't want to give give that picture. But, you know, that he was somehow most of the time bad because that was absolutely mm-hmm. not the truth. But um, but he definitely had a kind of um, self-destructive relationship to to his own success that, you know, that I won't try to armchair psychologize. Sure. But, but yeah. he definitely had that kind of relationship to success. I mean, you know, he called his, his first major label album About to Choke. right? <laughs> and then he proceeded to do a series of things that derailed his big giant you know, national and global tour. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, so we enacted the title of it. So, you know, yeah, that was a part of it.
0: Um, I'd love to talk a a little bit about his first album, which is like nominally produced by Michael Stipe, but is essentially just him playing, you know, it seems like all the songs he has at that point, or at least a, a generous portion of them. And he recorded it in like one day, right? Yeah. Was yeah. that like for him, was that uh, like an homage to Sun House and those guys, like doing those kind of marathon sessions, or was that just because he didn't have enough money to record a week's worth of studio time?
1: Um, well, I wish it was the first, but it really is the latter. Um, yeah. Michael Stipe paid for him to record at John Keene's studio. Uh, Michael kept telling Vic that he was going to record him, and Vic was going through a pretty dark phase. His, his, uh, some of his, I believe that was when his dad died. Uh, definitely. He'd lost some close family members. Maybe it was when his grandparents died, but he was going through a pretty, pretty bad period. And, um, the way Vic told it was, yeah, Michael says he's going to record me before I, you know, before I do myself in, you know, um, but Jeez. it never, did, it never did seem to happen. And yeah. so one day, you know, Michael finally said, Oh, you know, I, I've, you know, John Keene's studio, um, which is one of the probably the best place in town to record at the time and was pretty busy studio. was people out of town bands came there too. So it wasn't, you know, wasn't usually open. Somebody must've canceled, but, but, um, but Michael Stipe booked the, and it was considered expensive in Athens. I wish I could give you the exact amount of money. It was probably mm-hmm. nothing by standards elsewhere, but it was considered expensive in Athens. Right, and right. Uh, Michael booked, booked a, you know, booked a, a day of, of, of the studio. Um, so it was, it was all about the fact of, you know, that somebody else was paying. I mean, Vic didn't have the money to pay for it and, uh, Michael was paying and that was the time that was booked. Um, so he just put down everything he could thinking like, this may be the only time I record. Actually, I remember now his dad hadn't died yet. And he was very, very interested in getting an album out. He wanted his, his parents to know he was serious, you know, that this music thing Mm -hmm. was a serious thing. And he, he wanted to have that album to give his, give his father. So he just put it all down. Yeah.
0: Um, There's a detail in your book that I, I have to ask about, which is you talk about him sitting on the street corner, passing out atheist literature, like he was like a Salvation Army missionary. Yeah. Which is like literally a scene from *Wise Blood* from Flannery O'Connor's novel. Like... Uh, Is that, do you think that was intentional or just sort of inevitable that he would recreate scenes from Flannery O'Connor in his everyday life?
1: Um, You know, I don't know for a fact, but knowing him, my suspicion would be, I mean, I didn't, I wouldn't say this because I don't, you know, I'm a historian and I I don't have, I don't have any really, I don't have any tangible proof. Um, And when I when I encountered him, it was the first time I ever actually I won't say I met him because we didn't exchange our names. But that was the first time I ever saw Vic. was when I encountered him passing out this literature on the University of Georgia campus. But I would presume he knew what he was doing. He was an English major. Right. Yeah. You know, I I don't think that's just coincidence, but he was also an atheist. And there were always people at those locations passing out um, pamphlets, the Watchtower. But also mm-hmm. other things, um, you know, proselytizing. That part of campus was always full of people proselytizing. So it is possible that he was copying what those folks were doing with his creed, which was atheism. So I guess yeah. we could see this either way. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't no, solve no, that that's mystery. Fine.
0: That's fine. Uh, I, I feel like I've been asking you a lot of questions that are pushing at the boundaries of the historian's uh, craft. So.
1: Oh, that's fun though. That's fun. You can say (laughs) in an interview what you can't say in a book, if you're trying to actually do your best to record what you can verify.
0: Sure. Um, so I want to, uh, draw a comparison here in Carrie Brownstein's memoir. She writes that at a certain point, Olympia started to feel constraining to her and Slater Kinney, uh, and Olympia is another, you know, storied college town where a bunch of good bands came out of. Did did people start to feel this way about Athens at a certain point? I mean, you, you talked about R.E.M. already feeling like the town was too small for them in the early 80s. But was there a, a, a sense among other people or um, I mean, I know you don't want to tell a rise and fall narrative here, but.
1: Um, Yeah, I want to just go back to REM, though, and say that they, they went through that little moment, but then they fully embraced Athens. I mean, not just with Michael and the surrounding areas and the folk artists and musicians, but also they all began to, they were in the clubs all the time. They went through that period in the late 80s, early 90s of not touring very much. You know, they would take for the first time, they would take like a year, a year and a half off or they don't tour behind out of time, et cetera. So they're in town and they're producing other music musicians and at the clubs, jumping up on stage to, you know, sit in on a song all the time. And so they very much after that early moment really do embrace the scene just to just to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the bands that, you know, that. There, there was a sense through the early nineties that there was no rightly or wrongly. I'm not saying this is, this was a good idea, but that there was no bigger place to be than Athens. Like people were whole bands were moving to town. So why would you move your band somewhere else? Right. People really didn't, they they thought they were, as I said, rightly or wrongly, they thought they were in the center (laughs) of this moment in musical history. Um, I mean, probably that wasn't entirely true, but that was the kind of feeling on the ground and in the clubs. And so at least I can't think of an example. There probably is somebody there were, there were, you know, by the, by the early nineties, there were hundreds of bands in town, but, Mm -hmm. but for the most part um, nobody that, that you heard of or knew about, do I remember ever saying that?
0: Yeah. Um, And then, so you end the book sort of in the early nineties and in any kind of book about a place, the the, the temporal uh, benchmarks are going to be somewhat arbitrary. But I, I'd love to ask you kind of why you decided to wrap up the book when you did. I mean, the beginning seems like objectively sort of the beginning of the scene, but obviously the Athens scene continues. And there are a lot of great bands, the kind of Athens in the 90s, you know, of Montreal and uh, Elf Power and Neutral Milk Hotel. So why did you kind of decide that You know, late 70s to early 90s was the right uh, time span for this book.
1: Well, I guess for me, I mean, I thought that that history, the phase of Athens I was talking about, um, that there's something really profound about R.E.M. having a global, an album that is a hit everywhere, that people in Moscow are listening to Losing My Religion Um, as the Soviet Union is coming apart. I mean, that there's something that's just a whole different moment than than, you know, people are bopping around Athens singing along to Radio Free Europe. So that seemed like a major turning point. And also the fact that at that exact moment that that's happening, that Nirvana is coming out with an album that just goes to the top of all the charts and Mm -hmm. puts this alternative space, makes it. in a a certain way, its own mainstream musical genre that has all of this massive, you know, massive attention from audiences and major labels. I mean, it wasn't the first time major labels had been interested because major labels signed so many of those bands that were really hitting it around 84, 85, like The Replacements and Husker Du and all those, those bands, you know, you know, there was another moment of that too, but there was something different about that Nirvana moment. And it seemed like that the kind of cultural formation of alternative culture was really changing in that moment. Um, and that seemed like it was going to be just too much. I was going to need a lot of space to cover that well. And that the book, you know, books can be too long. So <laughs> that, that seemed, um, you know, having to do deal with riot girl, having to deal, deal with the rise of Seattle, having to deal, deal with Nirvana, having to deal with all the ways in which those developments impact what's going on in Athens. It just seemed, like another project. Um, you know, it's a minor reason. I mean, it's really not the major reason because I begin the book and talk about a, a pretty good stretch of time before I actually moved to town. so it's not it's not the only reason that i that I moved away at that time, but it was a little bit of the reason because um I didn't you know, I didn't have contacts. I didn't know people to track down an interview. Um, it would have been that would have been a different kind of work to do. but That's not that wasn't really the main reason, because I the people I had to interview about the late 70s and the first couple of years of the 80s, I wasn't I wasn't there then either. So um, so it wasn't strictly that, but it did kind of line up nicely that 91 was a major kind of turning point, at least in my understanding of the history of indie music. It's a major turning point um, when you could sort of argue that there is no more indie music. I mean, not in terms of its indie yeah, right. alternative becomes a obviously still is a genre um, that that Spotify uses to categorize music right. and 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 you know Apple Music et cetera. But but I, I think that's a major turning point. Um, and also, I think that the history of those um, Elephant Six bands and you know how a bunch of guys w- have these ties to um, a small town in Louisiana and move to Athens and. Then develop this whole series of bands and and a and a um, record company, et cetera. I think that's a really interesting history, but that that was gonna be a pretty that's gonna that was gonna take a lot of ground to cover. That'd be its own um,
0: book, probably.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think those bands are amazing. I mean, yeah. Mutual Book Hotel of Montreal, um, you know, Elf Power. I mean, yeah. there's there's great, great music coming out of Athens in that period. And then and then we get into the drive-by truckers, right? That yeah. whole era. So you could absolutely keep going. Um, you know, I, every time I write a book, I try to make it shorter than the last one and I don't (laughs) usually succeed, but, but I try and, you know, you got to stop somewhere.
0: I I feel like I've already taken up a lot of your time, but I do want to ask one last question, which is, uh, your book came out fairly recently, but have you gotten any response from any of the people that you write about in the book? Uh, about about you know how they feel you've captured the time and that and the place.
1: Yeah, I've actually gotten a lot of a lot of really fantastic response. Um you know I I I sent page proofs to some key people, um like Vanessa Briscoe Hay from Pylon and it was great to get and and she's been married to Bob Hay who's in the squalls and it was great to get their feedback and sort of input. Um, early on, but they've been, they've been really, you know, complimentary and have, have, you know, not that they necessarily agree with everything. I I don't want to suggest that they agree with everything that I wrote, but they've been super, super complimentary about the book. And, and I've heard from just got, just got an old fashioned letter from Ken Starrett um, from the Squalls to um, thanking me for the book and for you know, you know, how much it's spot on. And, you know, I get these emails out of the blue from, you know, an old roommate of mine who took pictures in the scene and was sort of a part of the scene for a while and how much she liked it. And so, so it's been really, really gratifying to get those. Um, I've only so far gotten one, you know, one sort of harangue, <laughs> but, but, you know, more of those may be coming too. Um, yeah. You know, I will say it was really hard to leave a lot of bands out, but, if you're telling a sort of collective story of a place to go through the kind of individual history of each band, as there began to be hundreds of bands, it's too repetitive, even though that band might be important and their story might be interesting. Some, a lot of that had to be cut for kind of narrative flow. So I I regret that, but, um, and I'm sorry, if you know, people feel like that stories should be there that aren't. And I encourage other people to write their own, your own versions of, you know, the Athens music story, because certainly there's plenty, plenty to tell that I couldn't get to.
0: Well, Grace Elizabeth Hale, thanks so much for being on the program. The book once more is Cool Town, how Athens, Georgia launched alternative music and changed American culture.
1: Thanks for having me.